In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Imagine a world where you don't own your identity, where every movement you make, song you listen to, and good that you buy is tracked. Where you're unpaid for your labor that generates billions in shareholder value. Economist Yanis Varoufakis argues that we don't have to imagine this world because it already exists. His new book, Techno-Feudalism, argues that capitalism's latest transformation has turned us into serfs, training the algorithms of our big tech feudal lords with every Amazon purchase made, tweet liked, and Tesla driven. We discussed the personal and geopolitical implications of recognizing this economic epoch and if we can ever break free from its chains. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Before we get into the subject matter today, your book, Techno-Feudalism, I'd invite you to tell the audience who you are, what you do, in your own words. Well, I used to be um, an academic that no one knew anything about because I I was... uh, uh, cocooned in my university office writing esoteric texts that maximum 20 people around the world cared for, and I didn't mind, mm. until I started feeling in the early 2000s that the world is heading towards another 1929 discontinuity, mm. let's put it mildly. And at that moment, I thought that I don't have the right, the moral right, to carry on playing around with my mathematical models of game theory. Mm. And uh, I started um, writing fiery articles and books, including the Global Minotaur, which became quite a significant text, even if I'm saying so myself, regarding 2008. Um, It was a time when I was also shifting from Australia to my home country, Greece, which was always going to be ground zero uh, of the European great financial crisis. And uh, at some point, having opened my mouth once uh, too often and written too many articles about it, a young man who was leading the Greek opposition at the time, this is 2010, 11, 12, 13, at some point invited me to become the finance minister if he were to win, which I did. And so, you know, from obscure mathematical texts, I was uh, elevated to becoming the finance minister of the most bankrupt state in Europe, the world. Uh, That lasted five, six months because uh, we had a pact, the prime minister and myself, that we would never accept another bailout loan under conditions of crashing 80% of the population. He decided that he wanted to surrender. I decided I'm not going to surrender. And that's it. (laughs) <laughs> I resigned and then created my own party, uh, going from small victory to grand failure, um, writing books all the time as yeah. therapy. Mm. So that's why. Okay, perfect. Let's let's indulge them in another hour of therapy, talking about <laughs> this book. Um, 
we're going to get into the concepts in it. We're going to go into it in detail. But top line for people who are just here to begin with, what's it about? Why is it important? Why should people read it? We all feel in our bones that uh, this crisis is never ending. It is metamorphosizing, taking different, you know, from a crisis of deflation, falling prices and falling wages, it went to a crisis of the cost of living crisis, of inflation. Uh, we know that there's something dismally wrong with the world. That, you know, capitalism was, was always a system <clears throat> that produced crisis. And uh, new funding forms of poverty and uh, depravity. But what has been happening over the last 15 years Excuse me. <coughs> um, is unique. We haven't experienced that since the 1770s, 1780s. This sort of universal sense of angst that everybody sh uh, shares, including, of course, about the climate. And my view is that the reason why we're experiencing this is not that capitalism is going through another one of its normal crises, but rather we are at a turning point, very much like the 1770s, 1780s, when there was a great transformation, as Karl Polanyi put it, from feudalism to capitalism. Under feudalism, power sprang out of the land. Anybody who owned land, the landed gentry, had power. And it was all sorts of power packed in one. Political power, economic power, cultural power. If you were the, you know, the aristocracy or part of it, you had it. Mm. And you couldn't distinguish between political and economic power. Uh, and the, the wealth came out of rent. The rents that uh, the aristocrats, the landed gentry charged, vassals and peasants and so on. And then there is this great shift from land to machinery, to capital. And from rent to profit through the commodification of land, the commodification of labor, even though peasants worked very hard, their labor was not a commodity. They couldn't quit. Mm. They didn't receive a wage. There was no labor market. Similarly for land, there was no market for land. You either you had it or you didn't have it. And then everything was commodified. So you, that was capitalism. It starts here in this country and in Amsterdam uh, around the end of the 18th century, and it continues to this day. Now, I mentioned before that it was in the 2000s that I, I was feeling that some major crisis was coming in 2008 the city of london wall street and so on in my estimation created a rupture in capitalism it wasn't anything like not even like 1929 it was even more substantial than that and for a number of years i was trying to think about what on earth is happening and i came to the very controversial conclusion which is this book that in the same way that we shifted from feudalism to capitalism, we are now shifting, without realizing it, to a new form of feudalism, a very advanced, almost science fiction form of feudalism. This is why I call it techno-feudalism. But essentially, we have a new land, which is the cloud, and we have new, a new landed gentry. You can call them cloudalists or, you know, the techno-feudal lords, the lords of the cloud, like Jeff Bezos, just one example, of Zuckerberg. And power is shifting from the owners of machinery, of standard machines, even industrial robots, even advanced machinery, to the owners of this network of machines that creates this digital version of land. And just one last point to explain to our audience what I mean by that. When you enter Amazon.com or Alibaba or one of those digital platforms, people think that they enter a marketplace. They do not enter a marketplace. They enter a digital fiefdom, because come to think of it, even though you buy, you sell, it's all mediated by an algorithm that belongs to one person who doesn't produce anything except for this landscape. And how does Bezos make his billions? If you produce a book or, you know, an, a bicycle or anything that you sell through Amazon.com, he keeps 40%. That's a rent. Suddenly, we've gone from profits to rents. But this time, it's not rents that you charge for the use or the lease, the leasing of land, but the leasing of the cloud. So I call them cloud rents. Mm. And the more I thought about that, the more I convinced myself that this is a great transformation, which is hugely important, not theoretically, but for me, the idea of the liberal individual gone. 
you know, you, you can't, you can no lo, 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 longer be a, a genuine liberal or even a libertarian, if I'm right. Mm. Social democracy, gone. Because what was social democracy? It was a kind of mediation between industrial capital and organized labor, gone. Because industrial ca capital now is being exploited by the, 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 those people. Mm. Uh, they get 40% of whatever it is that they produce. And no one is going to negotiate with Jeff Bezos. No one. They, no government can make any group of workers uh, sit down with Jeff Bezos. Or they can't make Jeff Bezos sit down with any group of workers and c carry out a social democratic bargain or New Deal or whatever. Mm. And also, if you look at the clash between the United States and China, why is this happening? I mean, Taiwan is not the reason. Taiwan was always a problem. Uh, national security is not the reason. My view is that what you have is two kinds, two cloud um, fiefdoms clashing. The American one, based on Silicon Valley and Wall Street, and the Chinese one. Mm. Europe is non-existent, because we don't have a cloud. So anyway, that's, that's the, the whole story, really. And we'll drill and down. There are details in the book. Perfect. And, and we'll get into those details over the course of this conversation. Before we do get onto that subject matter, I'd like to loiter around this point about the end of capitalism, about what's killing capitalism and whether or not, you know, you mentioned 2008, 2009. Is it fair to say whether actually capital is the force that's causing capitalism to come yes. to an end at the moment? That's a great irony. Uh, we use, I'm, uh, look, I'm a Marxist. I'm a left winger. Full disclosure, folks. Right. <laughs> and I remain a Marxist. And I think that this is a Marxist analysis. I mean, I'm, there's even an appendix with a Marxist political economy take for nerds. If you're a nerd <laughs> Marxist and you want to look at what is the actual political, Marxist political economy behind this book, there's an appendix. There. Mm. You don't have to read it, but it's there for you to, you know, to, to, to tell people that you've read it. If you haven't. Yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, we, uh, I'm, I'm saying this because we of the left always imagined that we were brought to this earth by chance and nature and whatever. Uh, in order to uh, overthrow capitalism. That capitalism would be overthrown by the organized left, by the organized labor unions. Didn't happen, we failed. We are dismal, abysmal failures. No doubt about that, right? All of us. Yep. Um, so what did the, the trick? Capital. Capital went through a historic mutation from a produced means of production because if you think about a fishing rod, a steam engine, an industrial robot, is something we have produced in order to produce other stuff. It's a produced means of production. But cloud capital is a produced means of behavior modification. That's very different. Mm. So effectively, you've taken the, if, if you remember Mad Men, the wonderful television series, and Don Draper, right? Mm -hmm. So you automate Don Draper. You turn him into Alexa. And he does much more than simply put ideas into your mind as to what you want. Firstly, he trains you to train it, to train you to train it, to input into your mind preferences. And at the same time, the moment you have that preference for something, that need for some good, it sells it to you by passing all markets. In that sense, capital has overthrown capitalism. So talk about this Amazon Alexa example a little bit more because this cloud capital idea is what underpins, underpins techno-feudalism, right? How does it differ from traditional capital? You covered it a little bit. And also, how does it turn us, the user, if you like, into the serfs of feudalism past? Advertisers have always been in the business of indoctrinating us, right? Of putting ideas, of manufacturing desires in our soul. This is the major transformation, transition from early capitalism to more advanced monopoly capitalism after the Second World War. Um, in the 19th century, the capitalism that Adam Smith was talking about was all about, you know, producing bread and, you know, ale and meat and, you know, carriages and horse manure and stuff. Things that people needed through a, a market-based mechanism for distributing productive resources. Uh, and using the price mechanism in order to equilibrate demand and supply and all that. That's before the war. After the war, you've got the big conglomerates in the United States, primarily, that emerged from the war economy 
They have these, this huge, immense productive capacity. They can produce a lot more washing machines that American families wanted. So they had to find markets outside, and they need to, they need to manufacture desires in our, in our soul for the things that they could produce, because they could produce a lot more than what we needed. So they had to convince us that we needed more than we needed. And that's Don Draper, that's advertising, right? But that was human beings, it was a new profession, the purpose of which was to convince you to buy stuff. Mm. One-way street. Don Draper comes up with an idea, wonderful poster on the motorway, you see it, you say, I want that, and you go and buy it. Okay. Still, a very significant change back in the 50s, 60s, 70s and so on. Today, what you have is Alexa sitting on your desk or Siri on your phone or Google Assistant, you know, all those contraptions, which present themselves as your slaves. So you say, you know, set the alarm clock for 10.35, um, order milk, uh, tell me a story, play music, stream a video, all those things. So it's great. I mean, I, I'm addicted to all those machines, right? Oh, yeah. I'm not a Luddite or a Neo-Luddite by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but that's not what Alexa is. Alexa is an interface with cloud capital belonging to one man or to a few men, usually men. Mm. Um, and what you do is you, you give it information about yourself. So you train it so that it knows you. And then it starts giving you recommendations about books to read, pieces of music to listen to, films to watch, which are spot on. I don't know about you, but when Spotify recommends music, it's usually music I like. Mm -hmm. When uh, Amazon recommends books, it's always mu uh, books I want to read. Mm -hmm. It knows me. Yep. Right. Which is very impressive. And we are impressionable people. So when Alexa recommends something to me day after, in, day out that I want, at some point when she recommends something else, I will want it or I will um, at least buy it. Mm. And it will always be quite close, not exactly what I would have selected without her, her or it, uh, but quite close, right? So this is a two-way street. This is an infinite regress. I tell it things so that it can tell me things, so I can tell it things, and therefore it acquires a great deal of power over my thinking and my preferences and my desires and my aspirations even. And the most important thing here is that it is the same software, the same mechanism, not just software, warehousing and all mm. that, that can actually send it to me directly, bypassing any capitalist. Mm. The capitalist then becomes a vassal to that. So this is, this is what is so different to Don Draper. Don Draper could not sell you anything himself. He could convince you to go into the shops and buy it. Mm -hmm. uh, and one final thing. The reason why this cloud capital, in my book and in my mind, is very different to very advanced pieces of technology like rockets or industrial robots, which are also very advanced contraptions. But the great difference is that capital until now required waged labor to be created. So from the steam engines to the industrial robots today, they were workers, they are workers, in factories together with machines and other robots and other pieces of produced means of production that actually build the stuff. Mm -hmm. So you need a capitalist who employs labor, machinery, uh, buildings, electricity, technology and so on to produce the capital. Not Amazon.com, not cloud capital. Most of cloud capital is produced by me and you. Because you know that very well, that why can't we compete with Elon Musk's former Twitter X? Even if you and I were great co coders and produced such a network, such a, such a piece of software for short form debating, mm -hmm. which is much better than Twitter, even if we did, who would join it? Yeah. All our followers are on Twitter, mm -hmm. X. I can't say it, X. Yeah, yeah, me either. Um, so the capital of X is us and all our tweets. Mm. Amazon.com, every time you buy something, right, or you like something, or you uh, upload a review, 
of some book or some product, you are adding to the capital stock. So we are creating the, you know, a large part of cloud capital. So cloud capital is a new form of capital because of the way it reproduces itself. Mm -hmm. It can reproduce itself using self-labor by people who don't even know their selves. So that's why I call them call us cloud serfs mm -hmm. because we do all this work. Even if we don't do anything, just we have our phone on us and we're walking around London, Google Maps knows where we are and that enriches its capacity, its cloud capital, mm -hmm. for telling people uh, where it's congested mm -hmm. and where they shouldn't go, or whether you know this shop is a popular one or a less popular one. Mm -hmm. So capital that produces and reproduces itself, that is a major discontinuity in the development of our technologies and the socioeconomic system we live in. Well, um, we'll talk about this point in more detail in a moment, I think, because it's interesting that um, Shoshana Zuboff in Surveillance Capitalism, she, she argues that those inputs, those behavioral well, activities that the companies then monetize, that it forms part of a new capitalist system, but doesn't go as far as saying feudalism. But we, maybe we can talk about that in a moment. But I just wanted to pick you up on, you referred to Alexa as she, instead of it. Yes. And it's a female name. And I wonder, maybe you do, maybe you don't, maybe this question goes nowhere, what role sort of the anthropomorphizing these technologies has of, of turning them into people, of turning Alexa into a woman, of turning Siri, where well, you can tell Siri to be whoever you want to be. But yeah. I wonder if you, whether you think that's significant or, or perhaps you don't, I don't, I don't know. Of course it is significant. Uh, the, the greater the capacity of the machines to present themselves as, as humans, uh, the, the greater the power of this infinite regress where we're training to train us, to train it, to train us, and so on and so forth. Now, you mentioned Zuboff and you know, her important book, Surveillance Capitalism, from which I've learned, and which I think is an important part of the story, but doesn't go far enough because it continues to treat those corporations as monopoly capitalists. Uh, now, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison were monopoly capitalists. They had created network companies. I mean, Thomas Edison was the Elon Musk of his era. Think about it. Um, in the early years, the first decade, 1903, 1904, he actually electrocuted a hapless elephant at Coney Island in order to demonstrate uh, that the electricity, the, the alternative current that he used, which belonged to Westinghouse, which was coming out of, of a Westinghouse powerhouse, uh, was lethal because he was selling a direct current which would not have killed the elephant or a human being. So, concentrated power, huge egos, newfangled technologies, this is not new. And the capacity of those people, especially Henry Ford, to monopolize markets through technological advancement and to create desires into people's minds, desires they didn't know they had. This is not new, it's there. Of course, big tech has turbocharged it. And it is true that they have such direct access through Alexa and Siri and so on, and our phones, really, I mean, our tablets, to us that that monopoly power, the, capa the capacity to monopolize a market uh, is now much greater than it was before the Second World War. However, where I go further is that I'm making the point that Amazon.com and thousands of such companies now are all over the world, in Indonesia, in Malaysia, especially in Africa, uh, this uh, shift from the market to digital platforms. These digital platforms are not markets. And the, I mean, Ford, how did he make his money? Selling cars. He made the cars and sold them to you. Now the, the owners of these platforms, of the cloud, do not make anything. They are go-betweens. They are essentially rentiers. And you might say, well, why don't we call it rentier capitalism? Well, we could. In the same way we could call capitalism industrial feudalism. It wouldn't be wrong. But it wouldn't allow our minds to concentrate on the fact that here is a great transformation to another social system which relies on rents, mm -hmm. not on monopoly profits. Mm -hmm. so that's the great difference with Ford, the great difference with Hilton, uh, 
the great difference with McDonald's. Yeah, all those people actually produced goods and services that that they monopolized and convinced you you really needed them. Mm. Bezos and the rest do not produce anything. They are creating a new kind of uh, um, rent, which sucks the economic energy out of the capital sector, which is now becoming a vassal to their own cloud-based empire. I think that's a different story. Mm. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Get out of my pub! It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Let's talk about those technological advancements then. Yeah. Um, specifically, which ones you think were integral to cloud capital first emerging and also where they came from? Where are they, where are they based? Where, where do these technolo- technological advancements start? They start with the development of algorithms that w- could actually improve themselves. Uh, when I was a student, <laughs> ages ago, um, algorithms were dumb. They were like recipes. You know, you take this ingredient, that ingredient, you mix them together, then if this happens, then you do that. If the other happens, then you do something else. And that's how programs learned how to produce good statistics, uh, solve mathematical problems, um, organ- create Excel. These were dumb algorithms. Mm. Uh, the moment you have reinforced learning in algorithms, so you have algorithms that do not have set objectives, they have a variety of objectives that the algorithm can select from. It's a little bit like telling um, a chef, uh, prepare a, um, a dish of meat lasagna. But at the same thing, if in the process you realize that the quality of the meat is not what it should be, you can have a vegetarian, you can change your objective. And then going beyond that, algorithms that could monitor their own efficiency and could change, alter their own functioning in order to become more efficient. That's the beginning of artificial intelligence. And of course now with generative uh, learning and l- large language models, you have, uh, at, you know, at some point, you, 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 this is a Hegelian dialectical idea, uh, quantitative changes led to, to qualitative changes in the same way that, you know, when you lose your hair, uh, which hair must you lose before you're declared bald? There is no answer to that. But there is a point when at some point people say, oh, you're a baldy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking <laughs> from experience. Uh, similarly, at some point, I can't pinpoint precisely when the development of algorithms and their capacity to improve themselves and learn from themselves and alter their own substance. At some point, this was a singularity, not that they became sentient. They never w- did, and I don't believe they ever will. But, okay, this is science fiction now. Um, at some point, they managed to acquire this capacity to do that which cloud capital does in my book. Mm. And I think what's important as well, and you point out in the book, is that the consequences that techno-feudalism isn't actually inevitable as a result of those technological advancements, that the political and social conditions were absolutely crucial. Yes. So what are those social and political conditions? Two. The first one was the privatization of the internet. Because Internet One, the first internet that came out 
of the military industrial complex in the United States, the Pentagon. Uh, when they brought in research scientists from the universities and all sorts of enthusiasts, coders, to contribute to the creation of the original internet, it was a commons. It had nothing to do with capitalism. So to this day, when you read a website, you use this HTTP, ancient language, computer language, right? But that's some, somebody created that, which allows us to read websites. That person didn't get a penny for it. It was a contribution to the commons, to the Internet commons. Similarly, with the, the, the various ancient technologies still used to send and receive emails, SMTP and so on, you may have seen those. You know, those were all um, protocols created by enthusiasts who were rewarded in a variety of ways, but not monetized it. Uh, so the first internet, I remember it, I was, I was using the internet before it was called the internet. It was called Janet. <laughs> Did you know that? Mm -hmm. Joint Academic Network. Nice. Before it was called the internet. Uh, at least in this country it was called Janet. What were you using it for? Uh, well, initially to exchange data with other academic researchers. Mm. Uh, and um, emails were called batch files because you would... Uh, create a, a little batch of messages and put them into a file and that file would then be readable in America by some colleague there. Mm. So, but it was a commons. Yeah. It was like the commons before the enclosures. So we had a new enclosures with big tech after 2001. Uh, and the most important development there is that they owned and privatized your identity. You cannot prove who you are on the internet today. You've got to subcontract your identity from uh, large corporations. So a bank knows who you are, right? Mm. So it can vouch on the internet through codes that it shares with Google or Apple, because how does Apple know that it's you? It asks you to input your data from your credit card or your debit card, so they take it from the bank. Mm. So Wall Street and Big Tech and the city of London together own your identity. You, you have to pay to use your own identity. That's the privatization of not just the commons, but of yourself, of the individual. Mm. Mm. To this day, there's no way you can say, it's me, I'm, here's proof that it's me. The state could have done that. The state could have certified who you are and given you, you know, a long number, which is you, and a PIN number to certify that, but the state doesn't do that. It leaves it to the private sector, to the conglomerates. Mm. So that's one. The second development which created techno-feudalism that spawned huge quantities and qualities of cloud capital was the response by our governments and central banks to the 2008 crisis. Because after April 2009, uh, I don't know whether you do remember, this, there was this meeting here in London presided over by Gordon Brown of the G7. Mm. Uh, essentially, they decided to refloat finance, to bail out the bankers mm -hmm. worldwide. And they printed together, over 13 years, $35 trillion, right? $35 trillion. And they gave it to the financiers. At the same time, they practiced austerity here in Britain, in Greece, across the European Union, in the United States, austerity for the many, and socialism for the financiers. Now, what, why, why, is it, why is this connected to cloud capital? Because when you create all this amount, huge quantity of money, which circulates, sloshes around the circuits of finance, but people out there have no money because of austerity, and they can't buy anything. Industrialists, you know, the captains of industry and so on, you know, Say, take Volkswagen, for instance, right? Or General Motors. They look at the little people and say, as if they can afford to buy something equivalent to Tesla. We're not going to invest in it. We're not going to mass produce goods that these people won't be able to buy. But they have all this money because the central banks have printed it and given it to the finances. The finances want to give it to these industrialists. So the industrialists think you know, Apple has 200 billion, 200 billion of savings. Now, why do they want money from the central bank? If they have savings, they don't. But the central bank picks up the phone and says, I'm going to give it to you for free. So Apple says, all right, give it to me. And you know what they do? They go to the stock exchange and buy Apple shares. The share price goes up. 
their bonuses are linked to the share price, they're taking more money in. You know, Mr. Cook and the rest, mm. Steve Jobs before. Uh, the only ones who took this money and invested it were the ones who invested in cloud capital. You know, the Jeff Bezos and so on. Uh, there is no doubt that all the money that has gone into creating the optic fiber cables crisscrossing the oceans, the server farms, the algorithms, the AI, and so on, nine out of ten dollars or pounds spent on that came from the huge quantities of money printed by the, the central banks, by the states. Mm. So the um, awful response by our governments to the 2008 disaster was part and parcel of what created the oomph, the funding for the cloud capital that now is taking over the world. Mm. It's interesting, actually, we, um, we had Mariana Mazzucato in here recently talking about the state's role. I'm, you know, I'm sure you know the book, The Entrepreneurial State, right? And the state's role often in being the first mover for a lot of this stuff, mm -hmm. socializing the risk, accepting the risk of, let's say, creating the technology we needed to put a man on the moon. But then at the end, it's the private company who reaps the rewards. It's the private company who takes the profits and the risk is socialized, the profits are privatized. I wonder what you're reading on the states in you know, in quotes, not not the United States. I mean, a, a nation state's role is in establishing techno feudalism, and whether or not you view that relationship between the likes of a Musk, a Bezos, as a parasitic one, that they are sort of benefiting from the investment that a state has made in the past. Look, Mariana's thesis is absolutely correct. Uh, for decades, the military-industrial complex the state has been central in investing and guiding the investing and having you know good civil servants i'll use a, a, a term of abuse or a phrase that uh, neoliberals use to, to abuse the state picking winners and decided that yeah good, they're going to be the internet the internet was not didn't spontaneously emerge it was a decision of some people in the pentagon to create the internet for military purposes, but nevertheless, it, it did not come out of the marketplace. Uh, and then the state comes in and invests. Um, every technology in your iPhone or your Samsung phone or whatever uh, was invented as a result of some government grant, which was directed in that in, you know, Wi-Fi, came out of the CSIRO in Australia. What did the Australian government get for that? Zero, because it was offered to the commons. Same with um, GPS. GPS was given for free. They could have charged for it, but they gave it away for free. And then these companies that privatize the cloud, privatize the internet, and that's the Mariana Matsukato story, then also privatize the returns and use it in order to exert more power and to deplete the capacity of the state to continue doing that, which is like an idiot who sits on a branch of a tree and starts sawing the branch. That, I think, is more or less the Mariana Matsukato story. It's a good one, and I agree with that. But as part of the same story comes my story, because by effectively emptying the state of content, of you know, deprofessionalizing the state, um, shifting everything to the private sector, subcontracting everything to those conglomerates. Uh, the state created a much greater crisis in 2008 than would have happened had the state not uh, done this. And then the private sector that was supposed to know better, that's the neoliberal story, right? That the market knows best, uh, collapsed under the weight of its own stupidity and criminality. That was the case in 2008. And a hapless, vacuous state, a state that doesn't have the expertise that it once had. This is the problem we have today, you know. The state does not, why, why do you think the HS2 is not going to be built? Because the state doesn't have any civil servants who know how to plan the construction of a major project anymore. They've subcontracted everything. Mm. Um, but still, they are responsible for saving capitalism from itself in 2008, 2009, under Gordon Brown. So, so what do they do? They do the only thing they know how to do, which is to 
print huge quantities of money and give it to the same people who destroyed, nearly destroyed capitalism in 2008. Mm. And then what do they do? They give it away. Most people, most companies like Volkswagen and Ford and so on go and buy back their own shares, except for some really smart people like Zuckerberg, Bezos, Musk and so on, who take the money and they are the only ones who invest. And I wouldn't call them parasites, you know. I mean, I dislike all of them. But they are, personally, I consider Elon Musk to be an evil genius. The emphasis on the genius, though. Mm. He's absolutely spectacularly smart in the way that SpaceX, he, he beat uh, NASA on its own game. He actually created spaceships that can actually land on their bottom, right, without being destroyed. You know, that's not to be scoffed at. Mm. So these people created capital goods, what I call cloud capital, which is wonderful that we have it. I mean, I'm all in favor of artificial intelligence. You know, when I, I spent the summer translating this book using Deepo, and of course working on, on top of it, I loved it. You know, I'm, I'm addicted to my phone and to Google and to all those things. No, Facebook, I hate, but that's my problem. Yeah. Um, I use Twitter all the time, mm. even though it's, um, it's like, who, who put it that way? I can't remember who said it magnificently. It's like taking everything that's been written on the walls of male toilets all over the world and putting it online. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, when I want to publicize my book, I use Twitter. When I want to have a political fight with somebody, I have it over, over Twitter. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that they are useless. I'm not saying that they are parasitical. Mm. What I'm saying is that the form of capital, which is creating a new socioeconomic order, which is not viable. And it's not the fault of the machinery. It is not the fault of the technologies. Um, it is who owns them. But that, that is a Marxist critique of capitalism to begin with. The problem is not the machine. Mm. The problem is who owns the machines and who doesn't have access to them unless they provide free labor or very cheap labor in the case of capitalism, free labor in the case of techno-feudalism. Mm. Let's talk about that, that order a little bit more then. We've named the individuals that sort of the cloud lists, the people that could be said to form uh, our new ruling class. Let's talk, could you talk a little bit more, I should say, about how their rise and their supremacy then places people like you and me as serfs in that system, how, how that dynamic works? The moment they can create a cloud thief, which um, attracts us, because let's face it, if I want to buy a book quickly, which I can't find on bookshop.co.uk, I'll go to Amazon and buy it. Especially if I need to read something quickly, I get it on Kindle, I go to the page, the relevant page. Uh, if I'm writing an op-ed for a newspaper, I do it. Mm. So they create a cloud thief, which you really need and want to be on. Once you're on it, you are helping, without realizing it, reproduce its capital stock, the capital stock that gives it power over you. So you are a serf without knowing it, a voluntary serf. But of course, the worst slavery is the one that people volunteer for, right? Jeff Bezos then can use the attractiveness of this cloud thief essentially to siphon off the capitalist sector most of the profits. Because you, when you charge 40% rent for anything sold on your cloud thief, then essentially you decimate the profit basis of the capitalist. So the capitalist, the standard capitalist, the old-fashioned capitalist becomes a vassal to the cloud capitalist or cloudalist, I'll call them cloudalists for short. We are cloud serfs to them. In the Amazon warehouse, the people who work there as precariat, they don't have any rights really, they're precarious labor, okay? Nomad land. Mm. Nomad land, watch the movie if you haven't, and you see what I mean. Uh, they have, uh, electronic devices strapped to their wrist, which monitor their every move, tell them, you know, which uh, um, uh, part of the warehouse to, to, to go to next, uh, what box to pick up. So they are cl cloud proles. I mean, if you've seen the wonderful movie Modern Times, 
by Charlie Chaplin. What he depicts there is now full on through the cloud, because it's the same cloud capital that connects Alexa on your desktop, your laptop, which creates cloud capital or recreates the cloud capital of Amazon.com, the software that drives proletarians or precariat precariously employed workers in, in the warehouse, the drivers who are delivering the stuff. So this is all a new form of mutant capital, which I call cloud capital, which also puts the lid on the profitability of the capitalist class, which means that because these people never pay tax, that states will always be impoverished, States will then have to increase VAT, which is the most regressive tax. So, you know, it's, it's, the plot thickens. Mm -hmm. it, it, it becomes a completely different kind of system. One could call it rentier capital, capitalism or platform capitalism, but I insist on shifting away from the word capitalism because it will help us concentrate our mind on what a gigantic transformation is, the equivalent of moving from feudalism to capitalism. Do you think we'll ever be able to tax them effectively? No. Why? Well, because they're too smart and they have better accountants than the government has. And they can shift from one country to another. Um, uh, and it is impossible to create the state power or recreate the state power against their own cloudless power to defeat them legally in terms of accounting, in terms of how they manage to push their profits from one jurisdiction to the other until it lands in some jurisdiction where no corporate tax is being um, levied. Uh, if we're going to defeat them, and if we're going to turn this into a viable society, the global society, we must forget about taxing them. We must think in old Marxist terms, how do we take their cloud capital away from them? And how do we socialize it? So you, it is possible, it's easier to, to imagine the end of the private property of cloud capital than it is to imagine the proper taxation of cloud rents. Hmm. We'll go on to that in a moment. We'll talk about viable alternatives. What a, yeah. what a more progressive, call it a utopia, future, whatever you like, looks like. However, is there, do you find it compelling to suggest, I, I, I sit here in this conversation with you and I go, Yanis, you know what? I don't want anything to do with this. I'm getting rid of my phone. I'm getting rid of my laptop mm -hmm. and I'm gonna go and live in a cabin in the woods and grow my own vegetables. Forget about it, see you later. I don't wanna engage. How do you answer that criticism? How do you try and compel people to not go, God, this is the power, the wealth of the, the forces we're up against is so significant that I just don't have the appetite to try and combat it. There aren't enough wooden huts for all of us to do that. And I don't believe you will do it. You may claim, you may feel desperate, and you may think that this is a lost cause, and you may think, say that, oh, I'm going to go and do that, but you're not going to do it. And even if you do it, you know, two months later, you'll come back, you will crawl back into London uh, using your phone again. Mm. Now, so, to find my way there, because I don't know where uh, I am. You know, uh, an escape to a bucolic um, past that never really existed. <laughs> yeah, is not the solution. Is it possible though to opt out? Maybe not in the way I've just described, but you know, you, you talked earlier about the way these companies co-opt our identities. Is it possible for us to opt out of that process? Is it possible for us to steal back what belongs to us? It's like saying, is it possible for somebody who comes from rags to end up with riches? The answer is yes, but only if it's one person mm. or a handful of persons. A handful of persons could rise from rags to riches. They can go from being you know, Amazon warehouse workers to being cloudalists. No doubt. No doubt. There is this degree of social mobility. But it is impossible for society to escape as a society from techno-feudalism. Mm. You mentioned at the beginning the geopolitics, or the conflict, Cold War, whatever you like, between the United States and China, and that it's wrong to understand that conflict as uh, sort of traditional geopolitical game, but instead as a conflict between two um, mm. superpower cloud thieves. So please, can you talk about that a little bit more? Mm. And I guess I'd ask you glibly as well, who's winning that war? 
Okay. <laughs> Before I answer the second part, let me explain yeah. what I mean. The rise of China is an American story in the same way that the creation of the European Union is an American project. We Europeans like to think that we had a fantastic idea to end the war in Europe. And mm. We had that idea, but the EU would never have been created without Americans uh, planning and executing the plan for the creation of the EU. Similarly, the rise of China, okay, Deng Xiaoping played an important role by opening up. But what happened essentially was this. Uh, there was a dark deal, I call it in the book, between the United States as ruling class and the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, industry would shift from the United States manufacturing to China. China would be, the Chinese capitalists would be exporting to the United States. They would be getting paid in dollars that the United States would have to print because the United States was a deficit country, remains a deficit country. But that deficit would be sustainable. Why? Because all the profit, the dollar profits, or the vast majority of the dollar profits of the Chinese capitalists would go to Wall Street and be invested in real estate, in shares, in derivatives, and in bonds. And in other words, a large part of the Chinese profits from selling to the United States would be financing the American government. Now, that's a synergy. They are accomplices. The Chinese Communist Party and the American rentier capitalists are partners. So why are, now, are they now moving apart and threatening the world with Armageddon, mm. with a new Cold War that may end up into a thermonuclear war? That question was in my mind, on my mind for a very long time, and I didn't have an answer to it. Um, until I noticed WeChat. WeChat is an application that belongs to Tencent, a conglomerate, a big tech megalith in China. And I realized that the West doesn't have anything like that. Mm. You know, imagine if we, there was an app, and by the way, that's what Elon Musk wants, wants to do when he calls an everything app, mm. that's WeChat. Imagine there is an app that allows you to send messages, uh, watch TikTok-like videos, uh, um, watch movies, listen to music, everything that Spotify, Netflix, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, Signal, and so on do. Everything in one app, plus free payments. You don't have that now here. Mm. Huh? You need to download the application of Lloyds Bank, of Barclays Bank, of Bank of America, and so on. They charge you an arm and a leg to make payments, or they charge proprietors, shops, shopkeepers, an arm and a leg, Apple Pay. They charge huge rents for making these transactions. WeChat, free payments. And you can have a WeChat app. All you need is a bank account somewhere in China, in one. So suddenly, this amazing deal that the United States had with China, but also with the European Union. A little aside, when the Euro came out, everybody was saying, oh, this is great because we Europeans will be able to compete with the dollar. The exorbitant privilege of the dollar and the supremacy of the dollar is going to be challenged by the Euro. That never happened and never will happen. Why? Because if you're a German industrialist, if you, you know, Mercedes-Benz or a Dutch industrialist, you don't want the Euro to usurp the power of the dollar. Because your money, most of your profits, come from selling to the Americans. Now, the Americans are a deficit country. The only reason why you, you sell to them is because they have this trade deficit, which they cover with dollars. And the only reason why you accept dollars is because of the, 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 the exorbitant privilege of the dollar. So you don't want the euro to undermine the power of the dollar as a European capitalist, right? That's, that's the greatest strength of the American dollar is foreign capitalists, not the CIA, not the American military, not Biden, none of these people. It is a foreign capitalist who freak out at the thought that the, that the dollar will lose its, uh, its authority and power. Mm. Um, that applies to the Chinese capitalists who do not want to see the one, the Chinese currency 
overtake the American one. But the Chinese, because they have, due to the power of the Chinese Communist Party, fused their big tech with their big banks, something is not happening in the United States. Wall Street will never allow Silicon Valley to go anywhere near the payment system. Right? Mm. So they are at, lo at, at loggerheads, big tech and Silicon Valley. Sorry, Silicon Valley and uh, Wall Street. Mm -hmm. In China, they refuse their one thing. That's why you have WeChat. Mm. Add to that the central bank digital currency, which allows you and me, foreigners as well, to have a digital wallet in China uh, with free transactions. In one, of course. Right? Suddenly, the predominance of the dollar comes into question. The Trump administration started the Cold War by freezing Huawei out in my estimation, it's because of that. Nothing to do with Huawei uh, posing a national security threat or anything like that. And then you have the war in Ukraine and the confiscation of $400 billion uh, owned by the Russian Central Bank mm -hmm. by the West, mm -hmm. primarily the United States. I'm not going to start a conversation about whether they should have done that or not. All I'm saying is that if you are a Saudi Arabian prince, uh, an Indonesian oligarch, uh, of course, a Russian, but even a Ukrainian oligarch. You never know what happens after the war. Right? Mm -hmm. And you see that these Americans um, have no qualm confiscating your money, hundreds of billions of dollars. Then you think twice before you put all your money in dollars. So this super highway of payments, of free payments that the Chinese have created, which they didn't even want to use themselves mm. because they want the American dollar because their capitalist profits come from the American dollar. Suddenly, it sees a lot of traffic. And Wall Street, they're shitting their pants. Excuse my French. It's welcome. Because they think, oh my God, here we have an alternative to the dollar system. I think this is what's underpinning the new Cold War. When Biden announced that essentially what he told the Chinese in the fall of 2021 was, we will prevent you from becoming a technologically advanced country. When, when, when you ban the sale of advanced chips, chips to a country like China, you're saying you will stay technologically backward. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a declaration of war. Technological war, but war, economic war. Mm. So they start decoupling themselves and they start putting more emphasis on this alternative payment system. So it's a clash of two cloud thieves, two cloud techno-feudalisms, mm. a clash between two payment systems, both of them digital, both of them living on the cloud, one dollar denominated, the other one denominated. And where is Britain? Where is the European Union? Nowhere. We are utterly insignificant. <laughs> it's a reassuring place to be, isn't it? Um, so I don't mind being insignificant. It's just that, you know, our politicians have not caught on to that. What, they, about what's actually happening? Yeah, they, yeah. Are, they keep thinking up, you know, making Britain great again, mm. the European Union that um, is going to become a significant force um, if we integrate more and we have more countries in the Balkans and Ukraine and so on. Rubbish. We are nobodies. Mm. It is China on the one hand with the coalescence of the BRICS around it and the United States on the other hand. Mm. That's a very unstable world to live in and doesn't augur very well for the European continent, including Britain. Could you talk a little bit about how cryptocurrency fits into that network? Because I, I assume on the one hand, uh, this possibly democratized, direct, discrete system for financial transactions potentially threatens the stability and the supremacy of those two payment systems you just mentioned, though. I think that crypto is overblown. Um, it's macroeconomically and sociologically insignificant. It is technically fascinating. When uh, the algorithm for Bitcoin came out um, by Nakamoto or somebody called mm -hmm. yep. Nakamoto in 2008, I spent quite a few months studying it. I was fascinated by the technology and uh, Wired magazine asked, interviewed me back then. What did I think of it? And I said, it's a fantastic solution to a problem we have not discovered yet. It's not money, and it can never be money. And I explained in the book why it can never be money. It can be a speculative asset, which is what it is. I mean, nobody uses Bitcoin to buy stuff. And it would be crazy to use it to buy stuff, if you think about it. Because imagine that, I mean, to begin with, 
Bitcoin has a fixed supply. It has to have a fixed supply in order to have value. But the moment lots of people use it to buy things, and more people come in, demand for Bitcoin increases. So its dollar value or pound value rises. At some point, when it exceeds a certain point, if it starts working as a functions as a currency, then people are better off using pounds again and keeping holding their Bitcoin. So there is a plateau. There is an inbuilt ceiling which does not pre that prevents Bitcoin or any other cryptocurrency from functioning like a means of exchange. So then it becomes a speculative thing. And then you have an oligarchy of those early adopters uh, who has, are sitting on very valuable piles, stashes of Bitcoins. So I don't find it interesting. I mm. find the, the blockchain um, technology very interesting. Mm. And uh, in my in previous book, Another Now, which was a political science fiction novel, where I, ima I imagine Another Now, how, think, how could things have developed today uh, in a socialist world after 2008? How would things work? Blockchain is part of the deal, uh, but it is not a way out of capitalism or techno-feudalism. It is a technology that we will use once we are free of the yoke of capital. Mm. You address the book to your father who hoped that a capitalist order would be replaced by a socialist utopia for the benefit of society. and it, and. One of the striking things, well, I was about, I wanted to ask you, was about to ask you, you're almost interviewing yourself, um, about another now, because obviously it was one of, the, one of the things with socialism, right, is that there are very few blueprints out there about what the future society could look like, and that is provided um, in another now. You have described it, you have just literally described it as science fiction, so I don't know how, <laughs> how valid it is um, for, as, a, as a comparison to techno-feudalism and as an alternative. But you, you sort of, you mention democratized company and democratized money. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you do think those are viable alternatives to the reality that you're describing in this book. They are the only viable models, because what we have now is not viable. It's real, but it's not sustainable. The economic crisis we are facing and which we will continue to face have to do with the fact that, you know, value is created in a tiny sector of the economy, which is shrinking the capitalist sector of the economy. That's where value is produced by wage labor, but that is shrinking. We have an increasing domain of free labor, um, of cloud serfs, of cloud capital, of the platforms, which are parasitic to an, a shrinking capitalist base. So our crisis, financial crisis, economic crisis, cost of living crisis are going to be getting worse and worse and worse, just like the climate crisis. So. This is not a viable system. It's a system we live in, but we are stampeding towards oblivion, both socially and environmentally. So the reason why I wrote another now, by the way, science fiction is not about airy-fairy stuff. Science fiction is not about the future. Science fiction is an innovative way of writing about the, the past and the present. That's why I always loved science fiction. So as a socialist and a politician, I always have to answer the the guy in the pub or the lass in the pub who says to me, okay, mate, if you don't like the way things are, how should they be? And that's a difficult question. And I didn't have an answer. That's why I sat down and I wrote that novel, which was about, you know, if, if our revolution, Occupy Wall Street and so on, had, had succeeded in 2008, what could life be like now, given the technologies we have? And, you know, the, the, the fallen nature of humanity, <laughs> that, that is a given, right? We are imperfect be mm. uh, beings. So I try to imagine what would corporate law be like. So I advocate uh, the idea of one, one worker, one employee, uh, one share, one vote. Which, if you think about it, it's such an easy idea. In the same way you have one vote when you go to the polling stations. You have one vote as a worker. And you cannot buy votes. You cannot lease votes. You cannot rent them in the same way you can't in the political system. So imagine that. Suddenly, without a revolution, without having, um, you know, without storming Buckingham Palace or the Winter Palace or whatever, mm. suddenly you have totally democratized the world of work and you have done away with stock exchanges because if you can't sell and buy shares, then what's the point of a stock exchange? Mm. And if you have 
the central bank, the Bank of England, let's say, or the European Central Bank, giving each one of us um, a free digital wallet with a PIN number where we can park our money, then what's the point of having an account with Lloyds? Barclays. You don't even need to be authoritarian and, 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 and ban them. They will just shrivel and die. Unless they can provide you with services that they're not providing you, you now. I mean, the only reason why you now have an account with a private banker is because it's the only way of, of, of using your money. So another now was all about being practical in a science fiction kind of way in answering the question, how could things be functioning today? Mm. Do you think we can get there? Well, I don't think I'm going to live to see it, if that's what you're asking, mind you. I'm getting old anyway, so that doesn't matter. So th this is the bad news. The bad news that is that I'm not optimistic. But I think that to be optimistic today, you have to be a real fool, given that there's no empirical evidence pointing to good outcomes. Mm. But then again, imagine this, imagine this being the 1770s. And I mentioned the 1770s because that was the time when Adam Smith was writing his Wealth of Nation, Nations, which spearheaded, spearheaded, introduced the world to the great transformation of the time from feudalism to capitalism. Now, if I'm right that today we're living in the same moment of transformation from capitalism to techno-feudalism, I think the 1770s is a good, a good point in time to compare ourselves with. Mm. So imagine this was the 1770s and I was advocating a world without slavery. And you were interviewing me and you said, do you think this is going to happen? I probably would say to you, no. I can't imagine, you know, there had been no human society without slavery beforehand. So how could the human mind in the 1770s imagine a world where slavery was universally condemned and banned? So on the one hand, totally pessimistic. On the other hand, absolutely hopeful. Good. Yonis Varoufakis, thank you so much for coming in. I really well, appreciate thank it. Thank you very much. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.